On March the 26th, Chloe Francis contacted us and she sent us this message. For the podcast near or around the 23rd of April, I would love for you to dedicate it to my mum. She has terminal cancer and doesn't have long left. She was meant to go to St Oswald's Hospice, but now she can't due to the virus. We have spent a lot of time together listening to your podcast. She's a big believer in the paranormal and has made jokes about staying around the house so I don't leave towels on the bathroom floor. I would be grateful if you could give her a shout out. Her name is Beverly Francis, wife and mother to six and grandmother to six. Beverly Francis was a big lover of fairy lore and on the 14th of April she passed away. This episode is dedicated to her, her daughter Chloe and the rest of their family. Welcome to episode 78 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Becca K. Charlotte Neal. Maraid Jones. Dallas D. Timmons. Fiona Eaglesham. Kelly Ray. Rhonda. Breed Nasolsha. Jem Gator. Ellie Cook. Laura W. Soraya Sharif. Dana Grace Souter. Jess Heaps. Britt Landis. Rose. David Mooring. Skylar Walker. Darren Parker. Alex Maloney. Kate Sanderson. And no, I said did that wrong shit. Katie Sanderson. And Roxanne Blanco. Shite, I was doing really well too. Yeah, I thought I was going to get to the wrong. end. I've got breeds wrong. I'm sorry, Breed. And we also have some key worker shout outs to give today. We do indeed. So just been taking a few uh, moments each episode over the last few weeks just to say thank you to all those guys that are keeping us running. Um, so we're going to do the same again this week. Uh, so first of all, we'd like, to, we'd like to thank Natalie Fraser, who is working 12-hour shifts in a care home with very limited PPE. And that's from Gemma and obviously from both of us as well. Um, we'd also like to thank Tommy the truck driver, who picks up ventilators and transports them all over the USA. Massive good job there. Thank you. Uh, Michaela Liff, who recently graduated and is working on awards battling COVID-19, and she's been nominated by her friend Miranda. So thanks a lot, guys. We really appreciate your hard work there. So our film review this week. Our film review is Leprechaun. <laughs> Leprechaun was released in 1993. It has 4.8 out of 10 on IMDb and a roaring 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? I'd love one. Dan O'Grady steals 100 gold coins from a leprechaun while on vacation in Ireland. The leprechaun follows him home, but Dan locks the murderous midget in a crate, held at bay by a four-leafed clover. Ten years later, J.D. Redding and his daughter, Tori, rent O'Grady's property for the summer. When their new neighbours accidentally release the leprechaun, he goes on a murderous rampage to reclaim his gold. What were your thoughts on this splendid cinematic wonder? I kind of liked it. Not in like a, this is a good film way, but it was just a good, it it felt, fun is not the right word, but I kind of enjoyed it. It was just a good laugh, really. It felt like a 50p movie club film. It wasn't that bad, but it did feel like a 50p movie club film. And I enjoyed it. I mean, look. (laughs) There's things that be that can be commended about this film, I think. And the first thing is, is that they actually use an Irish actor yep, for true. the Irish character. Uh, Dan O'Grady is played by an Irish man, which is refreshing because often I think Hollywood forgets that there are Irish actors and sometimes task actors from other countries with the feat of trying to do an Irish accent that doesn't sound like a stereotype. It's not just Ireland that has that problem. No, it isn't. But, you know, for me, I notice it more yeah. when it is Ireland. And I'm like, why did you cast Gerard Butler in P.S. I Love You? Surely you could have gotten somebody with a better accent. Yeah. That's just a very, that's a very personal gripe that I have there. But they didn't do that in this film. No. And they didn't. The, the leprechaun is played by Warwick Davis. 
And they didn't make him do a stereotypical Irish accent. They just threw in these random stock phrases. It was kind of like they said to him, right, imagine that you, you know, your great grandparents came over from Ireland a couple of hundred years ago. <laughs> Keep some of the phrases, but don't really too worry too much about doing the accent. And that's kind of the approach he took. Yeah, he sort of has this non-placeable accent, yeah. you know, and I'm I'm here for that. I'd rather do no accent than do a bad accent. And I kind of thought, I kind of thought it was intentional. I didn't feel like it was just him trying to do an accent. It came out so bad that it was unplaceable. It was more like... I'm just not going to try and do yeah. it. And I'm um, all right with that. There was also things that annoyed me about this film, like the lack of logic maybe behind his powers. So the or leprechaun... anything in the film. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. But the leprechaun has the ability to like apparate... At one point, he operates inside a fridge. He operates inside a locked a locked safe, but for some bizarre unknown reason, requires wheels to get around. So he inexplicably dons a pair of roller skates at one point. Uh, he's on a tricycle. Yep. He is in a... He builds his own little Robot Wars-esque machine. In, in the space of about a minute, he welds together this machine in the barn and comes out to attack them. This little machine that has the ability to flip a truck. Yep. Oh, it's just so bizarre. He, talking of trucks, my main gripe with this film, which is so irrational but very much me, is that there, there are two vehicles that are owned by the humans in this film. One of them is a brand new Jeep with a full tank of petrol plus two additional canisters on the back that are full of petrol also, because we see that later on in the film. And a pickup truck that is really old and a 12-year-old boy has to constantly jump start before everything starts getting crazy. Which vehicle would you use every time you were trying to escape from danger in that situation if you had the choice of those two? Obviously the old beat-up pickup truck that is unreliable <laughs> in the face of danger. Clearly. Which they literally, as a last result, there's the last vehicle that they drive is the one that is in perfect condition. They don't try and get away with it any other time. It constantly scuppers them. That is the most annoying thing about this film for me. For me. So, I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's funny. It's, it's laughable horror. Yeah. So for that reason, I'm actually going to give this a three out of five because I think, oh, fuck it. It's not. It's not meant to be good, is it? And I don't... I really don't think they meant it as like a tongue-in-cheek film. No. But that is what it turned into. So, uh, it's hilarious. I feel like if it was a little less gory, it potentially would have passed as like a 12 these days. Like it's, Definitely. It was more... It was like kid horror, yes. I felt. Because it was like a buddy movie, wasn't it? With the little boy and his, his Oggy Oggy or whatever his name was. Ozzy. Ozzy. And then there was a little bit of romance with Jennifer Aniston playing Jennifer Aniston. As she does in every film, apparently. <laughs> like bizarre but yeah I mean I'm going to give it a 3 out of 5 what about you? I am also going to give it a 3 out of 5 just simply because I quite enjoyed watching this as a 53 movie club film but it wasn't that bad do you feel a little bit sad that we watched it on the main episode? I would feel sad if the Leprechaun Origins featuring Hornswoggle from WWE didn't exist because that might be an option for 53 movie club so listen you could do the whole series of Leprechaun (laughs) films on 53 movie club all like 15 of them or however many I kind of want to see Leprechaun in the hood well this has been that has actually been recommended to me as a 50p movie club um, film and because quarantine is stopping me stopping us doing it in a normal manner it may have to be the next episode so the reason we watched Leprechaun this week is because I made you yes (laughs) because I decided we were going to do an episode about fairy lore and Leprechaun seemed like to Dan anyway a good choice for a horror film to watch. The alternative was watching Tinkerbell the movie and I just I don't feel like that's really what our audience are after. No, probably not. So what we're going to talk about today is fairy lore, the background of fairy lore in Ireland. But all of you American listeners, no, you do not get to escape this because I have found horrific stories from all over the world about fairy lore, about little people in general. Are you ready? No, definitely not. Now that you've told me that additional bit of information. Well, let's crack into some background first. This comes from the Irish Times and I will leave the link in the description. These enigmatic creatures go under many names, such as the good folk, the wee folk, the gentle people, the fae, and even the other crowd. The term fairies is merely an anglicisation for something that cannot be defined or pigeonholed just like the she themselves. 
But the fairies of Ireland are not the magical or elaborate fairies that we know from stories such as Cinderella or Peter Pan, or the paintings created by Victorian and Edwardian artists such as Richard Dadd and Edward Robert Hughes, or the photographs of the Cottingley fairies taken by Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths during the reign of King George V. Nor are they the delicate, sweet fairies we see in Disney films. The she lend themselves more to the imaginings of Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, Harry Clark and Bram Stoker. In fact, Stoker, an Irishman born in Clontarf, Dublin, in 1847, listened to many strange and disturbing stories about the Great Famine and the Good Folk from his dear mother. It was such stories that helped create the literary landscape for Stoker's 1897 masterpiece Dracula. It was believed that the famine was indeed caused by the she. According to folklore historian Simon Young, there was a belief among some Irish potato growers that it was the fairies' disfavour that brought down the blight on the land. Fairy battles in the sky, fairy tribes both fought and played hurling matches against each other, were interpreted as marking the onset of the famine. A victorious fairy army would curse the potatoes of the enemy's territory. The one question that I always asked while interviewing folk about the she was, and still is, what do they look like? Some people have told me the fairies are just wee folk, who seldom grew more than three feet tall, but resembled ordinary human beings in every other way. Their clothing was old-fashioned, and their features were plain, more ugly than handsome. Others have said that they look just like us, and one could be standing beside you and you just wouldn't know. But there is a strange look in their eye that gives them away. Some have said that they are beautiful, beyond belief, and when you see them, your life will never be the same. I've heard tell of them being terrible monsters and creatures from your wildest nightmares. Many folk believe that the fairies are fallen angels, that had nowhere to go, for they could neither enter heaven or hell, and we can't see them at all. I've spoken with many old and young who experienced firsthand the mischievous ways of the fairy folk. Some have been trapped in fields for hours or days, and some have been tormented after cutting a bush or a tree. But what I have found is that most people, whether they believe in fairies or not, both respect and fear them in equal measure and don't tempt fate by interfering with what they feel is fairy property. The folklorist Francis McPollin was struck by the stronghold that these folk and fairy stories had on the imagination of most of the older generation during the 1940s. He stated that he found that at least a third of those over 60 years of age were proud and professed believers in the little people. He also found that about half of the remainder believed in fairies but were not open about their beliefs. MacPollan documented a story dating back to the mid-1800s, told by an old-timer known as Blind Dan, explaining that the fairies were a group of fallen angels who had repented after being cast out of heaven just in time before they reached hell. So they were partly restored by God and allowed to take up residence below the earth. Most of them lived in underground caves with secret entrances into the fairy forts, which can still be seen in varying states of ruin and preservation on most of the hillsides in the surrounding countryside. It's believed that there was a definite hierarchy or aristocracy among the fairies, and these nobles lived in underground places that could only be entered via the larger forts which stood upon the higher hilltops. The general consensus is that the fairy world is composed of the original fairy people, known as the Tuatha Danann, or the people of the goddess Danu. According to the Armagh folklorist Michael J. Murphy, these were an early Irish race who were skilled in magic and able to escape the physical death of mortal man. They were, however, compelled to dwell in fairy forts, they entertained themselves by showing off their superiority over ordinary people by playing tricks on them. This tended to take place on certain times, such as May the 1st and October the 31st, Halloween, when the ethereal wall between the human world and the fairy world is at its thinnest. On these dates, humans were carried off or abducted by the fairies 
and kept in fairyland permanently. These humans are known as changelings. To protect themselves from such abductions, Murphy stated that the old people would place iron tongs across a cradle. Apparently fairy folk cannot perform magic when confronted with either iron, steel or the Bible. But there are softer ways to outwit the fairies. One is, if you are lost in a fairy fort or fairy ring, you take off your coat, put it back on inside out, put your left shoe on your right foot and spin around three times. If you do this, you will find your way out of the fort or ring. The reason for this is that the fairies fear madness, for they believe that it is contagious. This was told to me by a fellow storyteller and folklorist, Francis McCurran. In fact, all the knowledge we have told today about the she has been passed down by storytellers going back centuries, when the written word and literacy were only for the privileged and stories existed through the oral tradition. The she are not unlike ourselves in many ways, for they also fall in love. But they also fall out with each other. They have been known to have great battles with other she from the various provinces and counties. They've even been known to have hurling matches to settle their differences. People often snigger when they hear the word fairy, Yet time and time again, when asked, would you cut down a fairy tree? The answer is always no. Business tycoons in Ireland have been left penniless and the planning of motorways have been interrupted and every time fingers have been pointed towards the fairies. In 1992, Cavan businessman Sean Quinn lost his multi-billion euro fortune and it was believed that the reason was down to a fairy curse known as a pishog. He gave the go-ahead for a 4,000-year-old megalithic burial tomb to be relocated to make way for a quarry for Quinn Concrete. In the north of Ireland, one of the slip roads off the motorway from Ballymena to Antrim was built around a fairy thorn because locals didn't want to see it cut down. In the west of Ireland, the Ennis Bypass in County Clare was also rerouted to avoid disturbing a lone hawthorn tree. The hawthorn is native to Ireland and believed to be the dwelling place and watchtowers of the fairy folk. If you grew up in Ireland, you would have heard people talk about fairy trees and forts and most people wouldn't dream of messing with them. There are far too many stories about the ill fate people have met as a result of tampering with such things to simply write it off as mere coincidence. I've got some things I want to get off my chest. Oh, okay. Confession time. Go for it. The first thing is this 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 complete misconception that Disney's fairies are nice and lovely because Tinkerbell is rotten. Yeah, she tries to kill Wendy. Yeah. That, that's, not, that, that's not okay. No. So I, mean, I don't know why people are going around with Tinkerbell tattoos. You've yeah. essentially got an attempted murderer tattooed on you, Gabe. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a bit of a misconception. I think that fairies are real. And I think that probably the reason that some people are not as into fairy lore as you guys in your country are is because our sort of, our, particularly from an English reference point, is those fairies, which name I was desperately trying to remember so the that I didn't get it yet. Thank you. <laughs> and that was a massive hoax. And I mean, that was a really embarrassing hoax as well, yeah. because you had Arthur Conan Doyle came out and said, oh, this is the proof that we need for fairies. And then the two girls had literally just taken photos of cardboard cutouts. And I mean, you, uh, they've been a bit like, obviously, history has not looked fondly upon them for playing this prank. But actually, if you look at it from a photography point of view, um, you have to give them credit. Because they actually did a fairly good job. Never mind the credit. They did they a really good time. job. And if you look at the photos now, <laughs> yeah. like... You can even see from a modern perspective that they were really well done. Yeah, so it wasn't like, you know, you look at old time uh, monster films and stuff yeah. and you're like, you've built a tiny town out of cardboard and you have a, a monster toy yes. stamping around. But it's not, it's the, the Cottonley Fairy photos are really quite convincing. Yeah, they did a good job on it. So they need credit for that. But yeah, that's, that's why we don't, we tend to disregard them. But I feel like we might disregard them at our peril because of the way that you like, the way that, you know, motorways are diverted wouldn't dare cut down the tree all those kind of things that guy losing all his money i mean well there was um, messing with him, do you? tasha told me so my friend tasha who was the banshee 
um, story. She's a banshee. She was a banshee. Oh, Banshees my are part of fairy lore as well. They're part okay. of the she. Um, so she was. She has a fairy tree on her land, and I, I'm definitely going to get this wrong. But apparently, somebody tried to burn it down. So they tried to cut it down. They couldn't. Tried now. This is only like in recent years, not you know mm. hundreds of years ago. And this story has been passed down. Tried to cut it down. They couldn't. Um, they kept having problems with machinery when they tried to get this fairy tree out. So they burnt it, and the fairy tree is completely scorched, but blooms every year. Wow. Which is incredible. And really and cool, actually. Very cool. The other thing I was going to say is, so you know leprechauns? Yes. Are part of fairy lore? Yes. And they're obviously shoemakers. I mean, they're not. They're blacksmiths, <laughs> but okay. No, that's good. I'm glad you corrected me on that because that was the point I was going to make. So the leprechauns not go after babies because putting metal on a cot in front of a blacksmith is not going to be a... No, leprechauns... So according to... What the fuck is in this book podcast did a really good leprechaun episode a couple of weeks ago. And they talked, they delved loads into leprechaun lore, which is why I'm not going into it because it's already been done by then really well. So I would, I would recommend going and listen to it. It was fascinating. Leprechauns are blacksmiths. They are part of um, the fairy genus, as it were. They are magical beings, but they're also drunkards. So they drink all the time. They are blacksmiths, quite talented blacksmiths. Do we have to say allegedly about this, about them drinking all the time? Allegedly. They um, have the, what was I saying? They're saying blacksmiths, they drink all the time. They wear really raggedy clothes and apparently they don't wash. They don't have any sort of personal hygiene, allegedly. And they don't look after themselves. That people used to leave out like offerings to the leprechauns. So they'd leave out like milk or they'd leave out bread or they'd leave out little gifts for them the reason why they're associated with money allegedly is because they were misers like they they scrimped and saved and tried to keep all their money and that was their their whole reason for being is to blacksmith and to earn money and to drink and that's it and i, I and, you know and that's the the leprechaun lore itself is really interesting based off of that i pretty much say that if you were to leave me i'll probably just become a leprechaun so you'd become a blacksmith yep shrink yep stop washing yep and drink. uh drink alcohol yes the money bit i don't believe yeah that's the only bit where i would say i'd just become such a good blacksmith maybe that you would end up with yeah. loads of money i'd make all the swords for all the barons in the land yes because that's relevant for today's <laughs> society um there was one other thing I was going to say, actually, um, but it's completely slipped my mind. So carry on. So when I was researching this episode, then I decided to go and have a little look for real life encounters of fairies. And there's there. I mean, there are so many of them, so many stories of people who have encountered fairies in loads of different guises. Like they look different depending on the person that sees them, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Were there many positive stories? I know you're not going to tell them that, tell us them, but were there many positive stories about fairies, about them doing good things? They do. I think they do good things for nature if you leave them alone. But they didn't. They, they didn't. I, I might have misheard this. I was actually listening, but I might have misheard this. Did you not say that they? The law says that they did something to help during the famine. So no, they the law is no, that they, they caused hurling. the famine because of hurling. Well, they were at, at war, and then the winning fairies cursed the land. Of the losing side, hence the potato famine. I mean, so were fairies concocted by the British government to potentially, yeah, <laughs> to commit mass genocide on the Irish people? Ooh, controversial statements. Um, so, and fairies play hurling. Apparently, so yeah. Wow. So, is this what? Uh, so, hurling is the Irish national sport. I would strongly recommend. It's that you very similar it. to Quidditch. <laughs> it's not. I feel like that's what J.K. Rowling was thinking about when she came up with Quidditch, maybe. Potentially. It sounds very much like that, like sort of an ancient game yes. for warring tribes, which I guess is what hurling and Gaelic stuff is anyway, right? Um, Sorry, little sidetrack there, but I just needed to know that. So I, I went on the hunt, as I said, and my old pal Brent Swanser. How's he doing? I actually looked him up on Twitter. I need to like contact, I need to find Brent Swanser. Yeah. And Let's ask get him, on the him show. To, to get him on the show. So he, I'll leave, I'll obviously leave the link in the description, but he collected an amazing amount of stories that did give me the hijibis. Oh, great. About gnomes. Now, 
gnomes I thought were a genus of fairy lore that was completely made up by humans I know we have a gnome in the conservatory he's a writer he's a dude yeah he's, he's we've got a little West Ham gnome but I just I was I was completely blown away by this we also have video evidence what? of gnomes no but we're saving that for the okay. YouTube okay um, I've got a story about gnomes and pixies but I will tell you after you told us the stories are you ready yes this is long, so buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. Grab yourself a drink. Have a whiskey. Let's do this. One of the most prolific and widely reported types of fairy tale creature encounters concerns gnomes and other assorted little people. And there's actually a surprisingly large number of such sightings from all over the world. In many of these cases, the term gnome isn't even a nickname just given to some unidentified small humanoid, but rather denotes a literal gnome straight out of a fairy tale, complete with caps, boots and gnomish clothes. One bizarre report comes from a witness who had just moved to Puerto Rico with his mother when he was 17 years old. He claimed that one day he had gone to take a shower and suddenly heard the family dog frantically barking at something outside. It seemed that the dog was quite worked up and upset over something, so the witness got out of the shower to go and take a look out the window, where he saw something far weirder than what he had been expecting. There, in the yard, lurking behind a tree, was what the witness described as a diminutive man dressed completely in white and complete with a white cone-shaped hat and white pointed shoes. The odd little man apparently stared at the witness for a moment, and proceeded to vanish into thin air. A few days later, the strange creature appeared again, this time outside of the witness's window. The strange tiny man then smiled, and disappeared again until a few days later, when he appeared yet again. This time, the witness claims to have tried to communicate with it, asking it what its name was, to which it replied that its name was Sebastian Polizar. Things had gotten so incredibly odd that the witness, who had to this point not mentioned it to anyone else, told his mother, who perhaps, not surprisingly, didn't believe him. The witness then called out the gnome by name, and it apparently appeared out of nowhere, right there in front of them, to cause the mother to scream out in shock. This gnome reportedly would continue to make regular appearances around the house and in the yard until the family had had enough and moved out. Another case of a family that was plagued by an apparent gnome has a decidedly ominous overtone. The story starts with a woman known only as Tammy, who moved with her three children to a rural farmhouse near the town of Porterville, California, just off the Toole River in around 2004. Things got odd almost immediately, as Tammy claimed that she often felt the heavy sense of being watched, at times feeling the gravity of eyes upon her but there was never anyone around during these episodes. It did not take long for her to realise that the phenomenon happened most often and most intensely when she was near the barn, which sat in a secluded corner of the rather large 100-acre property. Indeed, in the coming days, the barn took on quite a sinister air, seeming to emanate a cold chill and spooking the many animals the family owned, including dogs, a cat, chickens, turkeys and even a duck. Although they tended to wander all over the property, none of these animals would go anywhere near the barn, as if repelled by some unseen force lodged within. Indeed, she observed that none of the neighbours' animals, strays or wildlife, would go near the spooky old barn either. Whenever any animals passed the barn, they would give it a wide berth, and on many occasions would act strangely in its presence, staring at it as if something were there, staring back. The dogs would sometimes go nuts around the barn, barking and yipping excitedly even though no one was there. Sometimes there could be heard strange noises coming from within the barn, which sounded like grunts, growls and squeals. To add a layer of thickening foreboding, Tammy claimed that she began to notice several of her animals had begun to go missing. Gone, without a trace. 
and it was immediately suspected that the menacing barn had something to do with it. Tammy chalked it all up to nerves, and perhaps rats or wildlife nesting in the barn, and explained the missing animals away as just having run off or even being killed by coyotes. But one frightening encounter would convince her that it was something much more than that. One evening, Tammy returned from town with her son and parked the car. But as she exited the vehicle and went to get some groceries out of the truck, she claims that she saw fleeting movement in the periphery of her vision. When she looked up, there was nothing there, and she went back to unloading the groceries. But almost immediately, there was another movement, this time punctuated by an insidious laugh. She would later say, This time I heard a very freaky, very evil-sounding chuckle. I looked in the direction of the sound, and there, standing about 50 yards from my son and I, was what I can only describe as a gnome. Standing there around 50 yards away was what she described as a humanoid creature about 3 feet tall, which sported a beard and was wearing baggy black pants, a gold-coloured shirt and a red pointy cap. For a moment, it just stood there staring at her son, and her, with deep-set, dead black eyes as if studying them. But then things took a turn for the sinister. Tammy would say, That thing grinned at us, and the creepy grin spread from ear to ear, and its teeth were a gross brown and pointed or jagged, It had a bulbous nose and a large, deep-set eyes, though I really couldn't tell the colour of them. I never got a closer look at it, and I don't know if it was wearing shoes or not because at that moment I dropped my groceries, grabbed my son and ran for the house. As soon as Tammy and her son entered the house and slammed the doors behind them, she began frantically telling her daughters what had happened between deep gasps. Somewhere outside... That strange little man was still cackling. And there was movement by the window. The terrified family looked out to see what it was. And as they approached the window they could see the top of the red pointed cap loom into view. Which was especially odd. Considering this particular window was located eight feet above the ground. Tammy closed the blinds, moved her children well away from the window and waited there breathlessly until the thing finally went away. This would be the only direct sighting of the evil gnome, but Tammy would occasionally hear the same ominous chuckling issuing forth from the shunned barn. She went on to say, After that night, whenever the dogs barked or howled, we were pretty sure we knew what they were barking at. We were also pretty sure where our missing poultry had gone. From time to time we would hear a weird, creepy chuckle and other noises coming from that old barn. Interestingly, this is not the end of the story. Tammy and her family would eventually move away, and a new family moved into the house in 2010. This new family too immediately noticed that there was something weird going on with that decrepit old barn. One evening... In the early morning hours, the couple woke to the sound of a raspy, gurgling singing, which chilled them to the bone. When they looked out the window, they could see standing by a small pond on the property, a creature around three feet in height and wearing maroon pants and a baggy yellow shirt with a brown vest and dark waistcoat. The thing was described as having a bushy grey beard and wearing a tall, pointed, reddish hat. The eyes of the being were said to be small and black, and its teeth were discoloured, jagged and sharp, to the point of looking almost broken. The creature seemed to know it was being watched, and apparently stared right back at them, before snatching one of the expensive koi fish they had stocked the pond with and jamming it into its mouth with glee. The husband allegedly shouted at it to go away and apparently it gave him the finger before running (laughs) off laughing. When the area was examined later, a set of footprints were found that were about the size of a child's. Whatever this thing was, 
It apparently really liked the pond because it would purportedly be seen there numerous times, always in the early morning hours at around 3am and often eating the fish within. It also rather amusingly seemed to like playing with the garden gnome decorations that had been set up there. (laughs) Fed up with this strange intruder, the husband then apparently took away the lawn ornaments and the fish, which caused the gnome to one night throw a tantrum, stomping around and shouting out in some garbled, bizarre language. The thing would skirt around the house, banging on the walls and testing the locked doors at night before the family finally had enough and moved away. The interesting thing about this case is that at the time, this family had no idea that the previous family had experienced similar bizarre incidents. I'm going to pause there, take a little break. We've got more stories to come, but what are your thoughts so far? It reminds me of Attack of the Garden Gnomes, which is Goosebumps book, which is about little people, little gnome people. But this also feels very Dobby-esque, or not Dobby, wrong one, I'm thinking of Harry Potter. What's the one? Gollum from Lord of the Rings. No. Not for me. The whole eating the fish raw thing. I did think when I first started reading this story, I did think that this is potentially actually just a human. Yeah. And then when he levitated eight yeah. feet off the ground, I was like, oh. I do love even giving a bit of sass back to him though. Yeah. Just give him the finger. Fuck <laughs> off, don't you tell me to leave. What was his name? Sebastian Polizar? No, that was the first one. Yeah. But that, but, this is a different... Yeah, I know it's a different story, but yeah. the, the name, the one that was named, that's a very specific name. It's a it? very fancy name. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. But do you reckon he just made it up? His actual name's like Todd. Yeah, I would. I mean, you're a supernatural creature. Do what you like. Yeah. Nobody's going to go. If a gnome appeared in this room right now and they said, my name is Sebastian Polizar, I wouldn't be like, oh, don't be ridiculous. That's not your name. I'd have other things to be worried about. Well, you say that. <laughs> However, I do feel that is something that you might say in the heat at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, your name's what? Yeah. I'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, it's a gnome. Oh my God. And he'd be like, I am Sebastian Polizar. Sorry, what? Your name's what? <laughs> Seriously. No, it's just... It just feels a bit weird, like you're a gnome. Why Why is that your name? <laughs> I feel like a lot is coming back to me about gnome stories. Do you want me to continue and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more about... Yeah, it's not it's not your noddy though, is it? It's a bit, a bit more violent. No, a bit more violent than noddy. This is the thing that really freaked me out. Like, these things are vicious. They're yeah. not like, I don't know, what, what you grow up imagining them to be like. Gnomes and leprechauns and like pixies or whatever else. Yeah. This is... Like, this is quite horrific. Yeah. Do you think that their garbled language is what Simish is based on? Yeah, probably. Yeah, me too. Tales like this go further back in time. And one early account of an apparent gnome comes from the rural town of Farmersville, Texas, in the United States in 1913. (laughs) Hang on a second, there's a place in Texas called Farmersville. Listen, I was just like... God, they did not think outside the box when they were naming this, did oh, no, they? That's, that's a game, wasn't it? A game on Facebook, like in the early days. That was Farmville. Oh, okay. And that was... Farmville was great. I put a lot of hours into that. <laughs> the witness, a man by the name of Silby Latham, claimed that while he and his two brothers were out toiling away on their cotton farm one day, their dogs began to bark and snarl off in the distance. The brothers thought nothing of it but the barking and growling became steadily more intense and chaotic until they decided that it was probably best to see what was disturbing the animals so much. When the oldest of the brothers, Clyde, went to have a look, he shouted to the others that he could see that the dogs were upset by a little man. When the others ran to see what he meant, they were reportedly met with the sight of a humanoid around 18 inches tall wearing a large pointed hat. And the thing was just standing there, with its arms at its sides. Silby would describe the scene as, He didn't seem to have any shoes, but I don't really remember his feet. His arms were hanging down beside him. He had on a kind of hat that reminded me of, like, a Mexican hat. It was a little round hat, and it looked like it was built onto him. He didn't have on any clothes. Everything looked like a rubber suit, including the hat. He just stood still. I guess he was just scared to death. Right after we got there, the dogs jumped him. Apparently, the dogs ravaged the little creature, tearing it apart. Although, of course, the body has become lost to the mists of time, as is often the case in these accounts. Another early report from 1919 was told by a witness named Harry Anderson, who claimed that one night, 
when he was 13 years old, he had seen a procession of around 20 tiny men marching along in the moonlight. The strange little people were described as having pale white skin and wearing leather pants and suspenders. The odd little humanoids were walking along in a single file and allegedly chattering with with each other in some unintelligible language. Although Harry was terrified, the creatures marched right on by him and didn't even seem to notice he was there at all. Starting from 1952, when he was just a child, the household of Dan Bortko from Kansas would be haunted by a gnome for years. The family had moved to a two-story home on a rural farm property in Liberty, complete with a barn, and from a very young age, Bortko claims he frequently saw a small humanoid about three feet tall and fully decked out in German lederhosen and smoking a pipe lurking around their house, often appearing in his room at night. The creature would stand there, looking at him, before smiling, winking, and then disappearing through the closet. Bortko also said that he would often look outside his window at night to see little people congregating out around the barn. He once drew a picture of what he had seen up close, and it was so frightening to his little brother that he would cry whenever he saw it. Bortko said of his first encounter with the creature, I had just awakened from a nap and was rubbing my eyes, and saw what you would call... A troll. I'll call him a troll because that's what he reminded me of. It was an old man with a long beard, a large nose, about three feet tall, standing at the foot of my bed, and I was astounded. There was another case in the early 1960s from a witness known as Jerry, who claimed that he saw a gnome or a troll at his home in Orange, New Jersey. Jerry claimed that one day he had gone outside into the backyard and seen a small gnome-like man with a long beard standing by the steps leading up to the porch. According to the witness, the little man had funny clothes on and a pointed hat and all. Years later, this strange creature would make another appearance at the home when Jerry's five-year-old nephew woke from a nap, crying, running downstairs and claiming that he had been woken up by a small man with a flowing white beard who had been staring at him while he slept. Why are they breaking and entering? They love a bit of breaking and entering, don't they? Standing. I also feel like that story sleep. with the dogs. Like I feel like they just those dogs just killed somebody. Like I feel like there's a strong possibility those dogs just ripped a human being apart. Nah, but then you know about it because someone. I mean, I do. I do know. I just read about. But they no, said, but like, "Oh, it was definitely a gnome." No, but like police report, wouldn't it? It'd be like a police report and stuff. Would there in 1913 if somebody said there was a gnome? The dogs ripped it apart. I guess they just wouldn't say anything, would they, no. if it was a real human? It's weird stories. Gnomes. I don't know, they just look so cheerful, don't they? I wonder how much of this is influenced by the garden ornament movement. They're just, they are weird. Like, I don't mind one or two, but they're like, they can be quite strange. Yeah, but I always, I never really imagine them as having like jagged teeth and see, eating animals raw and like black eyes and... I feel I like know. I've heard it before from like, obviously... The Goosebump books, that, the Goosebump book that I've mentioned before, or just a minute ago, whenever I did, obviously I know it from there. But I feel like I've, I want to say Rupert. I feel like one of those, you know, one of the kids' stories that you know around sort of Enid Blyton, maybe there's yeah. some evil gnomes in something. Oh, maybe there is. I don't remember. I feel like Enid Blyton had her share of evil pixies. Well, yeah, and she was also mm. a little bit controversial in her own beliefs as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, um, talking of pixies, we used to go on holiday to Devon quite a bit when I was a kid because that's where my grandma lived for for a time. And when we used to go, we used to go to a place called Pixieland, which we loved as kids because it had the most amazing ball pool. But we're not just talking, I'm not talking like a little one. We're talking like a massive action adventure playground, but it was just covered in balls. Sorry, I'm legit. Part of this pixie land, and the reason it got its name was because it had like a little scenic railway that used to go through the woods, and the woods were covered in garden gnomes. And oh pixies. God, really? Yep. Yeah, like, imagine the most garden gnomes you've ever seen in one place, then times it by like a thousand. Why was this part of the like attraction? Yeah, part of the attraction, and uh, weird. Never weirded me out as a kid. It was fun. I mean, the worst thing that happened to me was I, I nearly choked to death on the cornetto on the cra- on the train, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not directly related to no, gnomes I would had nothing imagine. to do with the gnomes and it never really occurred to me as being weird until I've just thought about it now and I was like that was actually quite a weird attraction so we're going to move to Iceland now oh no no, not, we can't. 
Not the shop, the country. We can't go to Iceland. We're going to Iceland. No. It's cold and there are elves. Mm, I know about the ice. I know a little bit of the Icelandic stuff. I don't. I don't. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it. You're just gonna have to buck it up. Are you ready? No. Perhaps related somewhat to these gnome sightings are similar accounts of smallish humanoid beings that are often described as elves. The country of Iceland in particular, which has ancient folklore steeped in tales of elves, seems to have a rather intense concentration of such encounters. Indeed, the majority of Icelanders firmly believe that elves are very real, and such accounts aren't really seen as particularly unusual there. So strong is this belief that in early 2012, the MP for the Independence Party had a 30 ton boulder moved from one place in southwest Iceland to his home to protect it from being destroyed by the widening of the South Iceland Ring Road because it was believed to be the home of three generations of elves that were credited with saving his life in a car crash in 2010. According to this MP, the accident caused his SUV to flip and land next to the boulder which had been situated along the highway. Although the vehicle had been totaled, Johnson himself was completely unharmed and he suspected that his good fortune had had something to do with the massive boulder his overturned car had come to rest beside. This notion was confirmed by an elf specialist, which is a real occupation in Iceland, who was amazed to see so many elves inhabiting this one boulder. Claims of elves inhabiting natural features of the landscape are not uncommon at all in Iceland and the creatures are said to actually be quite fiercely protective of their territory as can be seen in the 1970s when efforts to remove a massive boulder during construction efforts on a road met with failure due to numerous unexplained equipment malfunctions and illnesses among the workers which locals attributed to the elves known to live within it. There were so many freak breakdowns and malfunctions experienced by the construction crews that it was eventually decided to leave the boulder where it was, no matter how inconvenient it would prove to be. In 1996, when bulldozers were attempting to level a hill in order to make way for the construction of a graveyard, strange things began to occur as well. According to a bulldozer operator at the time, during the operation, two bulldozers continually malfunctioned, even though there was no discernible reason, and inspections turned up no problems with the machines. In addition to these equipment breakdowns, news crews who arrived at the scene claimed that their cameras would mysteriously cease functioning when trained on the hill, even though they worked as expected anywhere else. The stubborn problems dogged the construction team so relentlessly that specialists were brought in to try and communicate with the elves, after which the machinery started working normally again and the bulldozers would allegedly have no further mishaps. Similarly, in 2013, various equipment failures created hurdles for the building of a road just outside of Iceland's capital Reykjavik. There was also a mining operation in 2011 that was scrapped due to a never-ending series of strange malfunctions and mishaps. While the traditions of real elf sightings and encounters may be particularly strong in Iceland, it is certainly not the only place in the world with such stories. One account with a sinister feel to it allegedly happened in the United States in 1967 when the witness known only as Tyler claims to have had a rather harrowing encounter with elves of a seemingly evil nature. According to Tyler, he and his two sisters lived in a farmhouse and would often climb out their bedroom window to go ride horses in the early morning as their parents slept. One morning, Tyler's older sister Clarice was climbing out the window as usual when she suddenly stopped short and let out a scream before scrambling back into the room. When she got over her initial shock and panic, she told her brother that she had seen four little men standing around in the bushes outside, which she described as demon elves, from their disconcerting demeanour and appearance. Tyler thought it was all a joke, and went outside to the bushes where he saw nothing. That would be the end of it, until years later, when they were all talking and the subject came up. Clarice, who had thought she was the only one who had seen the creatures, was surprised to learn 
at this time that her younger sister Christy had also seen them that same morning. In Christy's case, the elves had woken her up by scratching on her window as they cackled maniacally and called out her name. They would torment her for some time like this before slinking off. She had not thought anyone would believe her and kept the story to herself, just as Clarice had. So they were both quite surprised when they learned that they had both seen the creatures that day. I love that there is there are elf specialists and that that elf had never seen so many elves before in one boulder. There's never a- seen them. That's incredible. There's um What do they look like? I keep talking about factor faked paranormal files lately, but there is an episode where they go to Iceland and they go and they're like lol elves, you know, kind of scoffing at the idea that Icelandic people believe in elves and they go and all of their equipment fails continually and repeatedly and they cannot get any footage. But it must uh, there's it's rooted in their in their lore like it is with the Irish, I guess. It's just part of what they've been brought up with and the fact that there's people that are that's their job is insane but i guess as well it's about preserving the natural landscape oh yeah absolutely so maybe it's maybe it's to do with you know i was thinking about this and like the famine for example which was horrific in ireland and and killed you know millions of people and the population of ireland has never been as much as it was before the famine. So we've never recovered from the famine, essentially. People were God-fearing people at the time. So they had to blame somebody. Do you know? And it was like, we've been really good and really holy and blah, blah, blah. We can't blame God. So who else can we blame? Let's blame the fairies. So I wonder if a part of it is uh, trying to understand natural things that happen, bad things, and trying to put some sort of like entity responsible for that or there's actually fairies and elves or there's fairies and elves which i'm leaning towards are you able for one more story i don't know to be honest my heart is going quite fast is it yeah as if gnomes and elves aren't already strange enough there have even been reports of actual leprechauns what one of the weirdest of these occurred in the last place one might expect for a leprechaun sighting in 2006, a large crowd converged to a mass on Lecren Street in Mobile, Alabama, when an NBC-affiliated news station, WPMI, arrived to see what all the commotion was about. They were told that a leprechaun had been spotted up a tree, which had slowly materialised there out of nowhere and was hiding within the branches. One witness even produced a sketch of the alleged creature. Although the video of the scene complete with commentaries by people who had seen the creature went viral on YouTube at the time, Manny thought it was all just a St. Patrick's Day hoax. However, numerous witnesses were adamant that they had seen what became known as the Alabama Leprechaun, with some swearing that they continued to sight the strange creature in the area afterwards. Considering the parodies made of the incident and all the fun poked at the story, it is nearly impossible to tell if there is anything more to this than a big joke. But it is a truly weird tale all the same. The news videos, perhaps, not surprisingly, don't take any of it seriously at all. And it just came out as a weird and amusing story of a leprechaun. It is hard to even know where to begin when trying to understand such fantastical cases. When one gets over the fact that there are actual accounts of alleged gnomes, elves and others from lore in the real world, we are left with numerous questions. What are these things and where do they come from? Are they flesh and blood or are they tenuous spectral phantoms of some sort? How can a fairy tale creature possibly be real and where do they fit into our reality? Is it possible that the power of these ancient tales has permeated our consciousness to the point that they are projected into reality through sheer force of the mind? Are they even real in any sense at all or are they just the product of hoaxes, exaggeration and tall tales? There is probably no one clear answer to any of these questions, and these cases remain just peaks into the world of the truly bizarre, where we can see through the window between things that are and things that seemingly cannot be. Or can they? Hmm. I think they're real. I think there must be some kind of elemental 
aspect to our existence. I like to think of them as like wards of the earth in some way. That their their job on Earth is to look after it and make sure that we don't fuck it up too much. Yeah. But obviously the the power of humans is we like to fuck things up. So There's a lot of us as well. I would love to go and speak to some Icelandic people about their Elvish lore. Because I think it's really fascinating. Is it much different to fairy lore, though? No, I don't think it is. No. But I'd be interested to see how much of it translates mm. similarly. Or whether there are differences. Or whether they just call it elves and we just call it fairies. No, I think they're probably different things. Because there's also, like, um, in Norway, there's lots of troll lore. Yeah. I know there's that film, like, Troll Hunters or whatever. But when you go to Norway, like, they're, all of their, like, trinkets, souvenirs are all troll-based. There's a troll in Seattle as well. Up in the university district, I think. I can't remember the exact area. But there's a troll under a bridge and it's really cool. This is going to be a really long episode. Yes. So I'm just... Are we, are we calling time on it then? Yeah, shall we do some reviews? Yeah, let's do some Cause reviews. Because I think if we talk any more about this, we're going to talk around in circles. Okay. So review number one comes from Amy Eliza T11. New favourite podcast. You guys are such a joy to listen to. My family had recently relocated to Germany and I've been needing a new podcast to listen to while I unpack. Honestly, I could listen to both of you talk all day just because of the accents. Thanks for all the fun ghost stories. Thank you so much, you. Amy Eliza. And our second review comes from KT and OT. Frightfully entertaining. There are a lot of podcasts that delve into the creepy corners of the world, but few manage to be engaging and send shivers all at once. Come across these guys on Twitter and listen to episode 33 at work. Excited to check out more. Also, kudos to sound production. Subscribe and listen now. And finally... Well we, done on your sound production. Thanks very much. We have... Corky YT, who said came for the accents, stayed for the content. I'm a very particular podcast listener, usually exclusively true crime, but your podcast has won me over. Before I knew it, I binged 20 episodes. Love it. I love that binge laugh. Oh, thank you so much. So that has been a really long episode. It was interesting. Yeah, fascinating. I would also like to know if anybody is from Devon, if you remember Pixieland. Might not even be in Devon, but on the way to Devon. Because it was Cornish Pixies. Isn't that a thing? Yeah, but we, we we never really went as far as Cornwall. So it is in Devon. It's in Devon or before that. Okay. Because we never went as far as Cornwall when we were kids. We just, Devon was as far as we went. So. so if you enjoyed this week's episode, you can send us your ghost stories to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. At RealGhostPod. You can find me on Instagram, Real Life Ghost Stories. Me at 50p Movie Club. You can find us on Facebook, Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast. Give the Facebook page a like and join our supergroup, which is RLGS Supergroup. And the password is... Emma and Dan. You can support us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Real Life Ghost Stories, where for $5 a month, you get access to over 50 extra episodes wow you got your commercial voice on there didn't you over Over 50 we also do a live stream every monday where you can come and hang out with us and ask questions and for two dollars a month dan what do you get Uh, you get uh, an episode or some episodes or a couple of seasons of 50p movie club which is a another podcast that i do with will and dave keen and we watch really bad movies and we talk about them and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Do you know, I forgot we were doing that and what have I done all morning? Yeah, you've literally been <laughs> editing YouTube videos all morning. So you can subscri- subscribe to our YouTube channel and you can also buy our merch. The link is in the description for this episode and so on so forth. Before we go, if anybody is still listening to this f- this far, I don't really think they are, but I'm going to say it anyway. I want to just publicly thank everybody who donated to our fundraiser this week. Yes, thank you guys. We raised three and a half thousand euros in two days yep which is pretty incredible it's sensational and went to an amazing cause so thank you we appreciate you we love you and you are amazing and on that note we shall see you next week bye bye